Thanks so much for finding us here at the Morning Glory Project. I'm your host, Betsy Graziani-Fassbender, and my co-producer, Angela Washington, and I are ever so proud and honored to bring the stories of amazing people to you. These are survivors, thrivers, innovators, and trailblazers who tell us not just their stories, but how they got through whatever they got through to get to where they are. We hope you find them as inspiring as we do. Thanks so much for listening and for giving us the honor of your time. My guest on the Morning Glory Project today is Margot Folks. She is the mother of two children, Jimmy, who is forever age 21, and his younger sister, Molly, who is now 26. After Jimmy's death in 2014, Margot created Saltwater, a blog and online community that provides a safe harbor for those who are grieving the death of someone near to them. Margot is the president of On Target Consulting, a firm specializing in helping organizations and their leaders act strategically, improve their performance, and achieve business goals. As of last September 2022, on what should have been Jimmy's 30th birthday, Margot published Leading Through Loss, How to Navigate Grief at Work. The book provides practical tools and ideas from leaders who've dealt with loss and offers insights into the perspective and experiences of grieving employees, what they want and need, what helps, what hurts, what support they were deeply grateful for, and what they wish their leaders might have done differently. Margot, thank you so much for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I'm happy to have you here today. Oh, I'm happy to be here, Betsy. Thank you so much for inviting me to, to be here. You know, I'm thinking about this and I have a question to ask you, but I also want to say before we begin that we've dealt with grief uh, in a number of different ways on the Morning Glory Project. And really, it's a topic I never tire of because it's something people are always going through and there are infinite ways in which people experience it, cope with it, deal with it, get through it. And I'm especially interested in your story, not only your personal loss, but as connected to work. I don't think that we've made that connection before. So before we go there, I want to just ask you, tell me about Jimmy. And I love how you phrase it that um, you have two children, Jimmy forever 21. So can you tell me about Jimmy? And I know that you lost him. Tell me about that. So Jimmy is my, is my, our oldest child. And he was he was this very easygoing kid, very easygoing baby. He came out that way. And <laughs> I remember once when he was little and he was in his crib and I could hear him, you know, moving around and making noise like they do when they're toddlers. And I went in to get him up from his nap and he looked at me and he was standing at the, at the crib, you know, holding onto the bars. And he said to me, I happy boy, mama, I happy boy. <laughs> and that was Jimmy. He just had this incredible light in him that it, it, he found the joy in everything, in the big and the small. And it was, such, it was such a blessing to him and to us as he navigated his life's path, which included at the age of 13 and a half being diagnosed with brain cancer. And so for the next eight years, as he navigated the initial treatment and then the recurrence, which happened two years later, and all the subsequent treatments, some of which, as you can imagine, was just horrific. 
he, he never lost that light in his eyes. Mm-hmm. And so even as he had limitations or lost some functionality towards the end, he had this ability to, to always find those moments of joy with people. Hmm. And it was, it was, it was something that allowed, I think his father and his sister and me to navigate that journey with as much joy as we did, despite the heartbreak. Um, and to, and to really suck all the, every bit of life out of that time in a way we might not have been able to, if he had been a different human. And not everyone is like that in their, I, I just hate to call it journey because that's just one of those words that drives people crazy, but in their experience with, with profound illness, cancer and other things, but it, I'm so glad that you had that as a blessing and that it made the row easier, but it couldn't have been easy all of the time. I know what, what was the hard part for you before and after Jimmy's passing? So the hard part was once, once the cancer recurred, was that, that fear that was always overlying everything, right? Of both the huge fear of, will we ultimately lose him to the cancer? But even just within like the 90 day lives that we lived between scans, that fear, the closer we got to the scan of what might be on the scan, or if we had to start a new treatment, you know, what might be the impact of that treatment, not just on the cancer, but also on him, you know, would he feel nauseous? Would he, you know, would he have headaches? Would he have, you know, would he wind up in the hospital with an infection? And I remember the the night he died, I turned off the baby monitor that we'd been using to kind of keep track of him, you know, when he was in the other room asleep or, you know, just even awake, but we were in the other room. And I remember that feeling of turning it off and the horror of, you know, knowing that he was gone. And also this, in a way, this sort of weird sense of like, okay, now the worst has happened. Right. And, and with that though, there was no, there wasn't fear anymore because, because the worst thing had happened. And we just had, we had lived for, you know, really six years with that fear. I was convinced that he was going to be cured. And I think my husband was as well. But once the cancer came back, then, then it was the fear. You know, and it's funny too, because I think that sometimes people that have a love, whether it's a child or a parent or a partner or a friend, that when they do pass, there's, there is the overwhelming sadness and finality of it all, but there's also a bit of relief that the fear is gone, that the, 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 what if, what if, what if, what if is answered? The answer, the question is over. Did you experience some relief? I did. I did. And also because thanks to the, the help and the, kind of the caring of Jimmy's medical team who was in San Francisco um, at UCSF, we were able to keep him home until the end. And so layered over that sort of general fear of losing him was also the fear of, would we be able to do this? Would we be able to keep him comfortable and free of pain and, and allow him to go peacefully? Or would we wind up, you know, in a hospital with machines and and a very different situation. And so, and it was really important to me that we be able to, to have him at home 
and not in the hospital with something that we were able to achieve, but it, but it worried me until the end. Hmm. Well, and, and also just the amount of space that taking care of someone ill occupies, the amount of psychological, emotional time, space, all of those things. It, it's huge. I, I have dear loved ones right now going through cancer treatments and, and I know that 90 day window and I know that, you know, waiting for that scan results and waiting for the biopsy to come back and waiting that, that during all that time, it's not like, Oh, I had it done. So I get a vacation for the next 90 days. It's not like that. It's like, Oh, it's a new kind of state of suspended animation of some sort Mm -hmm. (laughs) that doesn't let your regular life go on in the normal way. But it's also like, Oh, good. We passed a scan. Now we've got 90 days. We're kind of okay for now. It's just a weird suspended reality way to live, isn't it? It really is. And it's such both when they're alive and even after they've, they've passed, it's such a weird hodgepodge of emotions, mm-hmm. right? Of the, the, the fear and the, and the anxiety means they're still here and yet you, when they're gone and you do feel relief in a way, then they, it all feels wrong to feel that way because they're gone. And it, it's just, it's confounding, I think, what we're left with after, after someone dies. Well, as, a therap- as a family therapist, I cannot tell you how many times I have had a client in my, or for that matter, a friend outside of my office in my personal life who experienced that kind of relief along with their sadness and sorrow and wish the person was still with them and all of those things. And they have this enormous guilt for feeling kind of relieved. And I would say, oh my gosh, I I call it being pathologically normal. (laughs) Like, of course it feels like a crazy thing to feel relief, but it seems very normal that if your life has been so commanded by all of this, and, and also the worry and the worry that the person's in pain or suffering or watching them diminish all of those things that, that I think relief is, is a normal for whatever that word means, a a natural response as part of it. You know, people think that you ought to feel one way in grief and that's just not the reality there. You feel lots of ways. No, it's not exactly. And along with that, the other thing it calls to mind is that lovely line from Joan Didion's book, The Year of Magical Thinking, where she talks about leaving her, her husband's shoes by the door because she was convinced he was coming back. Mm. And, and I remember feeling so distinctly that Jimmy was just upstairs napping or away at school and knowing that that was not the case and yet feeling guilty and yet determined to really sink into that feeling, knowing that the reality was coming, that I wasn't avoiding anything. But if I could for a few minutes feel like, okay, he's just gone, but not gone, gone. Is it like a little vacation from the agony of it? Exactly. Exactly. And yet I've heard from other people that, you know, there's almost this feeling of like, no, I must not feel that way. You know, they really are gone. I have to deal with it. And I realized it's okay to let yourself sit there for a few, you know, for a few minutes at times because we need that relief from the grief. Well, you need a park bench to rest on between the heart pounding, gasping (laughs) terror and the sadness and the sorrow and all of that. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I'm sorry for you, for your daughter, for your husband. I'm sorry for your loss. And, um, and 
if I can switch over then to the, the other area that fascinates me about your book, and your book is, is leading through loss. And I love the word through, by the mm, way, um, as opposed to over or, you know, people say get over something. And I was thinking, you don't get over such a thing. You get through it. You deal with it. You live beside it. It lives within you. But I've never liked the, the over word when it comes to, to grief. So leading through loss makes sense because of the work that you do. And then now with the, the notion of grief added to that, what do you think workplaces, I guess we're talking about Western culture here, America, what do you think workplaces can do or don't do to support people going through grief? I don't think that we as a as a culture do a good job simply acknowledging that that grief exists. We we pretend that somehow, you know, if someone has lost someone that they can park that sense of sadness and grief at the door when they come to work. Or that if they laugh at a joke or or goof around with a coworker, that they must be okay because they're back to normal and I don't need to bring anything up about the loss. They're over it. Yes, right? exactly. They're over it. They're over it. They're better, right? And and they may be feeling slightly better in that moment, but it's not a static state, as you know. Mm-hmm. And right. so, you know, it there's so much attention paid to bereavement leave, which is which is shockingly to you know, not enough for sure. But the, the piece that was missing to me was this whole conversation about when there is a loss, we have to we have to turn and face it as a leader, as a coworker in a work environment. And that means acknowledging that it has happened and and showing up initially, which I think more workplaces are better about than not, which means, you know, reaching out, sending a card, sending flowers, going to the, the celebration of life or funeral, whatever kind of you know, ritual the person, the family's engaging in, but it means when the person comes back to work, it means, it means acknowledging that they bring their grief with them and that they will be different. Mm -hmm. They will have struggles with concentration or getting their work done. And that the thing to do is not ignore it and hope they get better, but to actually have conversations about that. Or even worse, even worse to, to discipline them for it. I've, I've seen workplaces that, you know, you have your three days of bereavement leave and you come back and, you know, people give you hugs on the day back. And then it's like, clickety-clack, back to work, tick-tock, we get stuff to do. And then they're on performance evaluations at, at some places, you know, that are less gracious about such matters. So when you think, when I, I guess I'm thinking as you speak that there's a necessity for a workplace to have sort of a soft place to land when people do return back. What would, in addition to sort of acknowledging that this happened, what else would, would a workplace, and when I say workplace, it could be, you could be a mom and pop shop with two employees, or you could be a multinational corporation. So, and, you know, there are different kinds of resources, of course, but in terms of the human element, what do you think is often most helpful when somebody does return and and how they can be supported. I think it really comes down to the to the manager, right? It's it's no matter how compassionate a culture is, ultimately we work for another human basically unless we're the CEO. Right. And so it's that manager sitting down with the employee who's grieving. 
and asking what kind of support you need now, because it may change. But in this moment, like what would be helpful to you? And it may be that the employee will say, well, I'd like to work part time. And in your mom and pop example, the owner may say, well, that's just not possible. Could you maybe work, you know, a day at home once a week? Could you, you know, come in a bit later so you can get your kids to school now that your your husband has passed away and and work, you know, and leave a bit early and make up the time at home. I mean, there's ways to accommodate almost everything. Mm-hmm. And it's I think sometimes, you know, leadership gets this idea that, oh, I have to do whatever the person asks for. And if I if I open it up, right, they're gonna ask me for for circumstances or conditions or help that I can't give. I don't really find that's true. I think so much of it is allowing that person to say, here's what would be helpful to me. Now, what is possible? Hmm. And working out some accommodations. And it might be less time on the phone. It might be a bit more time to work from home. Um, For some people who go back, they find that they want to be fully immersed in work, that it is the only place they can escape that that feeling. And and people are, that's the other thing is there's no one size fits all with this. The people have very different experiences. Some people just don't want to talk about it. They just want to focus on the work because that's their little vacation from their grief is at work. They feel functional. They know what to do. Whereas at home, it's hard. And other people just feel like scrambled eggs. They just, you know, they don't know how to focus and, and they need to accommodate or need to be accommodated in terms of, like you said, hours or tasks. I know that I was working with a colleague who had a profound loss and she said, you know, I can do the work. I just need to have the door to my office closed and can I just skip meetings for a week? I I just can't deal with one more person expressing sympathy and me having to feel it all over again. So if I could just work alone for a little while, that would help me. And wow, that was easy to do. Sure, we'll just send you the minutes of the note or we'll, you know, we videotaped it and you can watch it later or whatever. So there are lots of creative ways that workplaces can help. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the other piece of that, if I were talking to the employee, the grieving employee directly, is to really encourage them to say what would help. You know, one of my favorite examples is from the book is Sherry Raisler, who is the CEO of the Society for the Blind in Sacramento. Her brother died very unexpectedly, and she found that she was one of those people that wanted to go back to work, that the idea of sitting at home after she went back to Wisconsin, where she's from, and they had the funeral, she just said, I I couldn't, I couldn't stay home for, for that time. And so what she did, though, is she told her staff, I'm not going to be myself. I'm, you're going to ask me to do something and you're going to hear me say, yes, I will have that report, that memo, that spreadsheet to you by next Tuesday and Tuesday will come and you won't have it. And it's okay to come to me and say, you know, Sherry, you promised me that you would have this done and, and I need it and I don't have it. And she said, furthermore, I may snap at you. I may lose my temper. I may say something I would normally not say and just know it's the grief and it, it, and I'm sorry in advance, mm-hmm. but it's going to happen. And so what a beautiful thing to communicate. She gave her team full permission to come to her. And and I'm sure, I don't know that this happened, but if somebody did maybe feel hurt by something she said, you've given that permission to come and say, you know, when you said this, it kind of hurt. And then Sherry can say, you know, I was having a bad time and, and you can talk about it. Or better yet, they could give a little grace and not be so hurt by it because it's not about them. Exactly. You know, what, what you're really talking about, whether somebody is the boss, the manager, the owner, the employee, the whatever, 
is sort of just giving yourself a little bit of grace and giving others a little grace and also just recognizing that people do this differently. How you got through what you got through may not be how the next person can, and they may need something different. You have to kind of customize. So tell me a little bit about saltwater, which is a beautiful name, of course, because it's what tears are made of. Yes, I assume that's where the name comes from. Tell us about saltwater and what it is and, and how people can take advantage of it. So saltwater is, is a website and an online community. And on that website, there are resources for all types of loss, including pet loss, as well as specific kinds of loss, like overdose, um, dementia, which is his own kind of pain, um, and suicide. And there's a, like 400 or more blog posts on there now um, about all different topics that are all organized and indexed so people can find them by subject matter. Um, I write about two thirds of the posts and the rest are all written by guest writers, which was really important to me when I started Saltwater was I knew that I had my own experience that I wanted to write about and share, but that I have not experienced all types of loss. And that, like you were saying with respect to the workplace, my way of getting through it, my way of grieving, my way of finding ways to heal will be very different than someone else's. And so what speaks to someone might not be anything that I write. It might be something that other people write on the same topic. So it's, it's basically, it's open to anyone at whatever stage you are and whatever kind of loss that you're grieving. And it's intentionally set up that way. Um, it's, it's also set up so that you can come to the website or engage on our social media and leave no footprint if you want to do that. Because as you know, with grieving people, the last thing that you want is to encounter a bunch of pop-ups or a bunch of ads. You want to just find what you're looking for. And you may not want to sign up for anything at all. Oh, bless you, Margo. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say, I, you know, it's it's become just sort of normal operating procedure these days that if you check into anything that you have to put your your email address and then pretty soon like almost instantaneously you're flooded with something else that you have to do and that's just the last thing a, a grieving person needs how merciful of you can you please make that contagious and have a whole lot of other organizations do that <laughs> i wish i could i mean it was born out of my own desperate need for resources and just getting tired of either you know, getting that pop up of please sign up for our newsletter, please, you know, whatever. And again, it's no disrespect to other people. I know that, you know, for me, saltwater is a labor of love. I don't, there's, I don't make money on it. I don't sell anything on the website. So I also don't have the need to, you know, solicit that. Right. And I understand that for other folks, they may do that as their, you know, their line of business. But I just know as a, as a grieving human, I, I couldn't manage it all. And sometimes you just want to see the website and get a flavor of it and figure out whether you do want to engage before you're forced to sign up. And read a story that you might find comforting. Exactly. Well, I love also that you've got different categories because while grief is a universal kind of thing, there are some idiosyncratic experiences if somebody has died of suicide if somebody has died of, I, I know from my own experience, having lost loved ones that way, or if somebody, like you said, if it's from dementia, the person is gone, but not having their body hasn't died is another avenue of loss that I'm sure people find comfort in. And is that um, saltwater.com that where people would find that? No, it's actually, it's find your harbor. 
findyourharbor.com. Okay, findyourharbor.com. But on uh, on Facebook, I know, and Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter is would they is it so find your harbor? It's all yeah, everything is find your harbor. Mm-hmm. So it's consistent across all the platforms. Yeah. Okay, good enough. Let me ask you one sort of last question as we wind um, toward this. First of all, it, it seems that Jimmy would be honored um, by what you're doing for others in his name in a way, whether or not you use his name all the time. He, in your rendition of him, strikes me as somebody that would have been very honored and pleased by what you're doing. What are the tough moments now for you managing that loss and how do you get through them? So the tough moments for me are the ones where I think either I wish he were here for this, this gathering, this event, you know, this momentous occasion, whatever it is, coupled with the the feeling of when it's something like a life event, like one of his dear friends got engaged last year. Mm. And I just thought, oh, you know, in one moment, how much Jimmy would have wanted to be part of that joy around this engagement. And secondly, the fact that he is not here to himself experience that, you know, to get engaged, to fall in love, to get engaged, to, you know, get married and have children. And his mom doesn't get to experience that with him. Exactly. So it's that dual strand, right, of what he's missing out on um, being part of and then what he's missing out getting to do that I would be part of and his, his father and his sister would be part of if he were here. Um, which is something nobody warns you about. I mean, I don't know how much good it would do, I suppose, if they did. But I think, you know, there was a lot written about the devastation after the death. And I'm nine years out. And yet there are still things that just will take my breath away. Sometimes they are so painful that I didn't know were coming. How do you get through that? Um, for me, it's kind of twofold. My my husband and my daughter are just my lifeline. You know, whether we're talking about Jimmy and some aspect of, of sadness that we're feeling, but it's just the being together. Um, one of the gifts of having him for eight years when he was navigating his, his time with the brain cancer was that we got really, really tight as a family unit. And that's something that's continued on. Um, the other thing for me is it's all about getting out in nature. I just, I just find there's something about, about we live in the country and there's something about being out around, you know, on one of the horse trails where the hawks are diving and the, the, there's water in Folsom Lake, especially right now with all the rain, that it just regrounds me and, and allows me to kind of start seeing just those little flickers of, of beauty and joy back in the world when something like that, when I'm, I'm reminded of what I'm missing out on. Well, you are not the first, nor will you be the last person on the Morning Glory Project to talk about grief. And you are also not the first, nor will you be the last to say that nature is part of how you are restored. I'm so glad that you've done this. And I'm so grateful also that you connected the world of grief and the world of work. I think that there's a missing bridge there for lots of folks. And with uh, Leading Through Loss, you've provided a little handbook for leaders in organizations to, and in fact, I think one of the blurbs on the book says this ought to be on the, on the desk of every C-level person in and C-level uh, executive in America. And I, I believe it to be true. I, I wish you great success, whatever that looks like for you in this and that you um, continue to get to help people 
navigate these challenging waters. Thank you, Margot, folks, for being part of the Morning Glory Project. I'm so glad you're here today. Thank you so much, Betsy. You know, there are days when I wonder if people wonder, oh my gosh, will this woman ever stop talking about grief and loss? (laughs) And the answer to that is no. And that's because it's just something that everyone goes through in one way or another, and sometimes many, many, many times. And as many times as I talk with folks that deal with grief, deal with loss, I'm inspired by how they can teach us how to navigate those waters, those inevitable waters that we will cross if we're fortunate enough to live long enough and to have love in our lives. I often think that grief is the price we pay, the tax on love. I'm especially touched by Margot's story, not only of the loss of her son and how she and her family have dealt with that, but that she looks to helping people in the world of work You know, so much of our life is spent in relationship to our work, that we bring that to work too when we've suffered a loss or we're in the middle of that. So I'm so pleased that she's supporting that. I really encourage you if you are struggling or if you need resources regarding grief to go to findyourharbor.com and look at the Saltwater community also that's on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm really inspired by, there's a lot of tattoo art. There's a tattoo uh, campaign where people have chosen to get tattoos in memory of a loved one. And that can be inspiring too, whether or not you're into tattoos. It's just a touching and moving and beautiful thing to do. So thinking about your grief, your loss, the one you're experiencing now, the ones in the past, I think the word that comes to me when I think of an extra bloom is the word grace. That we have to offer ourselves and other people just a little grace around this utterly, deeply human experience of loss. And I hope that you are living with grace, that others are extending it to you, and that that is helping you to bloom. Mm -hmm.